Welcome to the Friendly Fire Podcast, a Navy SEAL Museum production. Hi, I'm Rick Kaiser, retired Navy SEAL Master Chief and Chief Operating Officer of the National Navy SEAL Museum here in Fort Pierce, Florida, the birthplace of the Navy SEALs. We are recording from inside the museum's own Mark V assault craft, and now I'm going to introduce my good friend, Tim Nichols. Hello, everyone out there. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My name is Tim Nichols, retired Marine and professor at Duke University. I'm super excited to participate in this, and I think we have a lot of cool things to talk about. Hey, welcome back to the Friendly Fire Podcast. This is uh, your host, one of your hosts, Rick Kaiser, Navy SEAL from the Navy SEAL Museum here in Fort Pierce, Florida. And uh, up in North Carolina, it's my good friend, Tim Nichols, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Are you ready? Friendly Fire. Here comes the lobbing grenade. So let's talk about the drinking age. Let's talk about uh, when you're an adult in this country and when you can vote. Uh, all that stuff wrapped together. It seems that we are uh, we don't know what what it means to be an adult in this country anymore because you can't have a drink until you're 21. I think you can't have a cigarette now until you're 21. But you can vote when you're 18. You can join the military when you're 18 and go die for your country. Um, so what's up? What do why? you think? I, I, I tend to think that 18 is 18. I agree with you. So why does everybody, uh, you know, throw it out there that, okay, yeah, but you can only have a drink when you're 21? Because the t- statistics uh, showed in the past that 18-year-olds had a propensity to drink and drive. And the insurance lobby uh, pushed our politicians to raise the drinking age because they were tired of cutting checks to parents uh, for kids killed in drunk driving accidents. And so um, it was, it's, you know, it's micromanaged by, by the government based on statistics and high schoolers drinking, high schoolers driving uh, was quite a problem when I was in high school. And I re- there were people that are just a few years older than I was at the time who uh, had their grandfather. So they were drinking and driving at 18. And you know, I never I was never allowed to drink in high school because it was 21 when I uh, finished high school. But I think it's it's a risk assessment and a statistical information that supports a policy to take it to 21. It doesn't mean that it's right, but it it costs the nation a lot more in terms of damage, insurance, liability, uh, threat to the to travel, all that kind of stuff if you make it 18. But you make a good argument, you know, guys who are joining the military at 18, that's pretty dangerous too, right? Absolutely. So uh, you're, I guess what's, what it's set up to be is that you can't, you're not responsible enough to, to have a drink until you're 21. I mean, that's yeah. basically what the, what the government said, but you're responsible enough to vote. Right. And I, I just have an issue with that. You either are or you're not. So you either make it 21 or you make it 18 and there's no in between. And I've actually heard talk about they want to uh, lower the voting age to 16. And I'm like, no way in hell. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, uh, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's I don't even think it should be 18 to vote because what expe- what life experience does an 18 year old have to vote for whatever? Uh, maybe uh, some local um, races that affect their lives and their families' lives, but not a na- at a national level. The only thing they've done is go 
go to high school. I mean, it, that doesn't prepare you for anything. They may or may not have even had a civics class for crying out loud nowadays. Um, so I believe that if we're going to do it, it has to be one or the other, 18 or 21. Um, you know, of course, we can't sustain our military if we if we actually moved it to 21. I don't think uh, that would that would work. So basically, uh, I think it should all go back to 18 and call it like it is. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I like the idea of preparing somebody for their 18th birthday and saying, OK, once you're 18, all of these things are different. You must register for the draft. You uh, have the right to vote. You now will be treated from here on out if you get into trouble as an adult. Uh, you ha- you can join the military. I mean, I, ideally, we would take 17 years and prepare our children for what it means to step into adulthood, understanding that you know there's still going to be some mistakes. But the 1821 kind of doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me because the things that they can do in a, at 18, join the military, vote, um, you know, be be prosecuted, be get uh, dis, uh, receive capital punishment. Like they can do all that at eighteen, but yet twenty one, you know, first first beverage. So, yeah, I think there should be an age, and we go after this age, you're an adult. So let me tell you a little story about how great a planner I am. So I joined the Navy when I was seventeen. Right, I had to get my parents to sign for me. Went through buds, graduated when I was eighteen, and because I was such a great planner, I knew that California, the drinking age was 21. But at the time in Virginia, it was 18. So I put in for all my duty stations in Virginia, knowing that I would get somewhere over there on the East Coast so I could drink. So is that, That's good planning. Is that, that, that is, it had nothing to do with the SEAL teams at all. I wanted to just yeah. have a drink. You know, that's a beginning of a long string of successes, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know it, but you know, it, but it's but it's funny, though, because I was uh, when I, I got stationed at SEAL Team 2 and then we would go back to California every now and then for different training. And I would see my friends that I went through class with that were stationed in California. They couldn't even go out to have a drink at the bar. I was like, this is insane because here you got SEALs made it all the yeah. way there they're doing everything they're supposed to do and they can't even go to the the bar and have a drink because uh, or college students enough. right like yeah it changed the complexion of college to be frank you know it just it just changed the complexion of the university uh, because nobody and people are typically undergraduates are 21 in the end of their final year and so that's the first time they can legally go out and yeah. uh, have have a alcoholic beverage so is there any topic. kind of a punishment or repercussions for a, a college kid at uh, at duke that ha- is caught underage drinking uh sure yeah i mean, it I mean what do they do it happens so I mean, in the, by the on college. the campus you know yeah. so we have two different uh two different systems one is the dirt out in durham where the university doesn't have any authority and so that would be the durham police they'd follow the law they have policies in place probably arrest the kid um, or cite them and then you know put it into the legal process if it's on campus um, it just it matters what actually is happening they may just freeze the situation perhaps uh, tell the 
we have like deans of students and stuff, get them involved, go through some remediation, some counseling, probably not a legal process and there were, unless there was harm or damage. But uh, there's a philosophy, I think, that says, hey, look, let's address these issues. Let's keep the kids on campus. Let's uh, try to provide as much safety as possible, but at the same time, try to get them to behave well. And so the faculty are involved. Duke has its own police force. Everybody's talking to everyone else so that the leaders are informed of situations. And then based on the severity, they decide which way they're going to go forward. But, you know, part of it is just kind of keeping them like when you were a young seal, some of the stuff that you guys do, like, hey, we're going to have a lot of fun, but we're going to control it. Everybody's going to be here and we're going to watch everybody. And if someone's out of control, then one of the senior guys would fix that. Uh, I think that mindset works at Duke. I think uh, I have a solution for you that can handle your underage drinking there. So, oh, please do tell. Yeah, I think last time I was at, at on campus ne- at your office, right next door, you had a uh, a room that was called a safe place. Right? Is it still safe there? Room. Yeah, safe room. Yeah, safe got, room. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, safe room is still there. So. The next time you catch, you know, some underage drinkers, you you put them in the safe room, you sit down with them and you say, you know, what is so stressful in your life that's causing you to drink so much? You know what I mean? And I want you to be able to talk to them and uh, and then maybe even have a drink together and then say, you know, um, and then the more you drink, the more it's going to come out. And then finally you'll get down to it. But these are already in the safe room. Right. Yeah. So then, Wait, did it, you have safe rooms in the SEAL teams? So, safe so rooms. You, so you call the safe, but in the safe room is actually a bar, right? <laughs> so yeah. So they can't leave until they are sobered up. So I got, I got it. Yeah, we probably should hire you. I mean, with your <laughs> ideas and your forward thinking, I can, I can see where you would get uh, a lot of support. Uh, in we had of ideas in the seals. We had unsafe rooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, a drink, you know, that is an issue with the, with the SEALs. And I think a lot of the military is the uh, uh, drinking culture. Um, no. You know, I can remember when I was a young SEAL, uh, every Friday uh, we would, uh, you know, do our morning PT, uh, some tremendously, you know, amount of running and swimming and O courses. But after that, it was a, every, a keg, a keg of beer yeah. At, yeah. every Friday. So that, you know, the rest of the afternoon was spent drinking and, and having fun. But um, uh, each of the team rooms, as you know, uh, has a bar in it. Um, and, you know, look from the, somebody not familiar with the, uh, with the culture, they would say, oh, my God, that's terrible. You shouldn't, you know, promote that. They shouldn't be drinking at work, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the, the intensity of the training and, and just life of a, of a SEAL team, it's a, it's a good place to decompress, have yeah. a drink with your friends, Talk about what you did today. Talk about, you know, the future or what, you know, what you could do better to do your job better. And I, uh, I don't see anything wrong with it, but it's definitely got to be controlled, you know. So maybe yeah. that's our, that's what I was saying. A safe room is actually a bar. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether you're 18 yeah. or not. <laughs> are you, um, are you doing your part of the podcast this week from a bar? Yes. I'm actually yeah. in the uh, Mark Five Assault. <laughs> so we yeah. have people that come down here uh, in our. This is an assault craft. It's an 82 footer. It was a war uh, war boat, and they walk downstairs, and we tell them that all Navy boats have bars in the bottom of it for the crew. And then a lot of yeah. most of the people that believe us, right? Until we tell them <laughs> that we're just making it, making it up. And that, actually, what we did was we converted this whole space 
uh, used to you know store weapons and different systems of the boat, and we gutted it out and made a bar into it. So this of course is our, you did. Yeah. This is our museum safe room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Elaine is your supervisor. Elaine is my supervisor. I have many supervisors here at the museum. <laughs> depending I on just what love your log. Skilled. A long monologue about the old old days when the bars were ever present, and you're doing it from a bar. <laughs> yeah, from a bar. Yes. Now, if you walked in our office, if we we actually may shoot from our office one day, it's there's booze everywhere. Uh, one of our big sponsors here is uh, Philip Bush and Southern Eagle Distributing. Philip's the grandson oh, okay. of August Bush, you know, uh, Budweiser. Anyway, so we, he, gave, he gave us a, yeah, it is very good. So he gave us a nice uh, refrigerator, freezer for all our cold stock, and then we have a whole bookshelf full of uh, uh, hard liquor. So and now we're talking about you know actually starting a, a CBD pot growing business at the museum. I don't know if you knew that. Wow. So we're no. uh, yeah good. yeah so alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. So we have Jack Daniels. We have lots of guns. So all we need now is some cigarettes and some pot, and we'll be you know. ATF's best friend. I'm That's just right. kidding, Tim. Yeah. We're not going to sell any. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. Uh, do you have any of those glue guns that I was talking about at the museum? I, I know that you have quite a few guns. Do you have any non-lethal weapons at the museum? Uh, let me. Th- I don't think we have any non-lethal uh, weapons at the museum. Um, you know, as you know, the military normally, unless you're a military police, doesn't go there to. Uh, de-escalate and talk things over you know if you don't put the gun down or you don't do that it's a there's no questions asked then you that person is dispatched right Um, so we don't typically i know it's been looked at a a number of times but you know uh, training somebody with a military mindset to de-escalate and use non-lethal i think would be very difficult but i'm not saying it can't be done but uh we're not going there to police people you know, right. it's not it's not our job, but I know the Marines are really heavily heavily into non lethal um, because they do work a lot in embassies and they do need to you know not shoot <laughs> protesters that are coming after them. So they have to have a way to to, to deal with that. I just um, I don't know a lot about it. Uh, I've seen yeah. a lot of different things, and I wish we could have had them at certain points. But uh, you know, it's, it all costs money, time, and effort, and to be a seal or anybody else yet it's it's limited on what you can and can't do yeah yeah no that's a good point that's i was just curious as to whether you had it i i think there's uh, an upswing in in developing it for domestic and overseas because you may be in a situation where you need to basically incapacitate everybody before you find out who the bad guys are and a non-lethal way would uh, allow you to do that uh and so you know, with directed energy and with certain kinds of gases and other things, you know, you kind of put everybody incapacitated and you walk through and you go, okay, that one's a bad guy. That one's a good guy. That one's a bad guy. Uh, but it would, I could see other uses, uh, you know, for uh, the United States. We should put some money against that. Now, I did have a uh, non-lethal uh, cattle prod at one, at one time. Um, nice. So believe it or not, back in the day, I know I have coming back in history when we used to have chief initiations. So when you make uh, E7 in the Navy, you become a chief petty officer, and it's a big it's a big deal. And anyway, there's an initiation. Some people may have called the hazing um, <laughs> that we don't do anymore. Uh, when you were doing it, it was definitely not hazing. When it you was went not through, hazing. It was certainly hazing. <laughs> but uh, when I was the uh, you know 
a young master chief I was put in charge of the uh, chief's initiation one year. And I thought to myself, what better way to use non-lethal force than I had to buy some cattle prods. Um, so I had to, I went through the system, believe it or not. And the Navy doesn't have uh, veterinary, uh, veterinarian services. They don't, they don't have vets, but the army does. So you go through the army system and I ordered two of these nice, cattle prods they had uh i think there was like six or eight d cells batteries it was a long mm. a long prod with two little things sticking out in the end so when the, the the new chiefs were acting up you know they would get a little non-lethal uh shock and then <laughs> they would get in line and do what they're supposed to do and i always wonder what happened to those prods you know so i'm sure somebody took it home is doing something that they shouldn't be doing with them right now so it does disturb me but uh, it was never hazing I just want you it was to know never that. hazing. Never and I'm hazing. sure if you ever did a crossing the line ceremony or any of those other naval traditions that uh, the cattle prod never came out for those things either, did they? No, 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 no. I was I, I actually uh, one of the few seals that's done the what do you call it? The blue nose where you cross the Arctic Circle. I've never done the equator. Um but it's a little bit different up there because it was so freaking cold that uh, you didn't have a lot of time to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's no hazing. There's no nothing. Quick ceremony, and you get to, you know near the fire or wherever you had to go to get warm. warm. So yeah, that's that's the deal on that. Oh, I got a the next subject. I think came from Elaine. It says about horrible bosses. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure she's talking about me, but. Uh, <laughs> She wrote to me and said she was, but yeah, I don't know if she, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sure what happened was is that, you know, I'm now the uh, chief operating officer for the Navy SEAL Museum Enterprise, and uh, my replacement is a a former commander, Navy-type Grant Mann, 34 years in the Navy, just retired, and I think that's who she was actually talking about when she wrote that down about how horrible bosses, because that's now her boss. Oh, got it. I am so well loved here that there's no way that I could be written written about like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I know. I've, yeah, I have I'm sure Elaine's emailing me now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, uh, we've all worked for horrible bosses, you know. And I, uh, one of the problems I think we've talked about it before in the in the seals is some of the uh, uh, disrespect that uh, the enlisted guys may or may not show towards officers um uh and because of the military system you know that's not acceptable you know that that is just not a a, something that can be tolerated at any level at any time and um even though some of these officers were, were were terrible so i'm just um i guess my question is as because you were and are in my mind, an officer, you know, how do you deal with guys that are like actually putting people at risk in, uh, you know, life and death situations? How, how do uh, the troops deal with somebody like that? With a bad officer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, I think that uh, our military is superior because of the senior enlisted. Uh, they, they, they tend to uh, have the judgment that they need the good ones have the judgment that they need to coach a bad officer uh, to steer a junior officer and also to enforce good order and discipline without that 
we would be very much like all these countries. I'm sure you did a lot of training operations like with the Egyptians or uh, countries in the Middle Middle East where there isn't a good NCO and you have the officers who are kind of like the bourgeoisie and then you have the enlisted, which are like there's no strong uh, relationship of respect. They're basically the servants and it doesn't work. You see, you need it in between. And I would like to think that if there were a tactical situation where the officer wasn't up to snuff, that that senior enlisted would say, okay, you know, officer, here's, we need to do these things. And, and hopefully a good officer would be willing to, to listen and, um, and take the advice of a senior enlisted. I mean, that's the whole purpose of senior enlisted, right? They, they, they've got a, they've got a, not run the show. The officer's making a number of big decisions, but they've got to manage uh, the employment and the use of the guys. And good units have good senior NCOs. Bad units have bad senior NCOs. And sometimes it doesn't matter. You could have a bad unit with a really good officer in charge, and it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and I think, it, you know, when it comes to the, the middle management, you know, the senior NCOs, the, uh, you know, middle middle grade uh, officers you know commanders lieutenant commanders that 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 level they work well together but it, as they get promoted i think it what happens is a lot of them become very politically oriented and uh, they forget about you know what they were supposed to be doing who they're supposed to be taking care of in order to uh you know, I don't know whether they boost their career or uh, worry about politics too much. Um, I guess where I w- wonder about is like when you get to these senior officers and like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, they're weighted on ha- hand hand and foot. It's like a, a almost like a what do you call it? A monarchy or a, a, a yeah. king queen type relationship. Emperor, yeah, yeah. So it's like that's uh, that's not good. And and you have guys that you're you're trying to deal with and make have a discussion with and talk about what's working, what isn't working, and every whim that they could ever have is taken care of from from the housing to the driver to the food to this to that to the other thing. And you're like, of course, how can they relate to a, a you know senior uh, enlisted guy? There's it doesn't work. Uh, I think yeah. that's something that we could probably uh, you know improve in the military right now. I agree. And it, it takes away their humility, and that's the other piece. Like, people have hard lives, and, and when you have all these servants and, and the people who wait on you tend and fo- hand and foot, you, you don't, you're, it doesn't make you humble. Like, it doesn't. It, 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 and I think the humble leaders tend to be the best. They tend to be the best family guys. They tend to be the, most, the best listeners. They tend to be the uh, ones that demonstrate respect uh, at the highest and lowest level. And Secretary Gates, uh, Secretary of Defense, came to Duke one time to talk, and he he joked about uh, on Saturdays blowing his leaves off of his yard into the chairman's yard because the chairman had people who raked his leaves, and the Secretary of Defense didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So he'd just blow his leaves over in the chairman's yard. (laughs) How bad is that? (laughs) Well, I mean, you're talking on base housing, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that was, I think he was making that one up because it was all taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a story we tell at the Navy SEAL Museum. I just make it up on a day to day basis. No, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. I think he was just trying to bring up that same point that you're bringing up, which is like, 
you know, hey, the chairman has all of these people who take care of his every women fancy. How could he be? How how does he fit the profile of a military public servant who is you know is serving is not royalty isn't an elected position isn't a business leader he's a military guy that is in a job and he should be doing his job without his own jet and you know fifty colonels who follow him around and and uh, meet his every whim. Oh yeah, yeah. Handle all the travel, all the travel claims, all the paperwork. Yes, they have a lot of responsibility uh, during wartime, um, but a lot of them, you know, I can't remember what the uh, the uh, statistics were, but back in World War II, there, were, you know, if you did the amount of uh, sailors and the amount of admirals, it was, I can't remember what the percentage was, but it was very yeah. little. Now when you look at it, it's like a uh, quadruple, you know, six, seven, eight, eight, nine, ten times of officers to enlisted guys. And you're like, well, why do we need all these guys? You know, what happened? Yeah. Um, did they become worse leaders? Uh, you know, do, do we really require that nowadays? Or is it just a jobs program, you know? But the one thing, Rick, that, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And even when we worked uh, together and you were the assistant operations or deputy operations officer, I mean, you. I don't think you consciously did it, but you created a positive environment where people wanted to work. Like they felt like you supported them and they wanted to work. And I imagine you do the same thing. And that's the opposite of a bad leader. That's giving people some, you know, some uh, broad guidance, asking for help, uh, telling them that you can't do it without them, and then creating an atmosphere where they can thrive. And I, I, it sounds like you're doing the same thing at the museum. I mean, volunteers are particularly picky because. If they don't want to do it, they're just not going to do it. They're volunteers. They can walk away. Absolutely. And I guess the, the key is to try to do the best you can, and then you got to recognize there's some people aren't going to work out. Yeah. And that's the leadership part of that need. You have to get rid of them. And, and that's not that's right. that e- it's not that easy uh, thing to do, but it is what it is. And, and then the, the good employees recognize that. And, uh, you know, we threaten Elaine on a daily basis. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's for her, it's effective because she takes it to heart and she moves on and she does her job. So it's like, so now I have uh, the, the new guy, Grant, do it. The horrible boss that we were talking about earlier. Um, right, right. He threatens her now. I don't even have to do it. Just once in a while, just for fun and for, you know, for nostalgic reasons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>